I loved people. I genuinely, genuinely care about people because I know what it's like to be completely alone and near death. And that is a, if you have experienced that and you've come out of it, you can't look at humanity the same way without having compassion. Today on The Social Exchange, I'm speaking with Mark Sheeran. Mark is an addiction expert. He's the co-author of The Freedom Model for Addictions and the creator of the Freedom Model Retreats. He's also the founder and chair of the Baldwin Research Institute. Today we talk about the utility of and the limits of drug replacement, often called MAT, or medication-assisted treatment, as a way to overcome addiction to opioids. Mark says there's plenty of reason to believe that much of what we hear about the MAT movement is grounded in mythology. And today we talk about why. In the coming episodes, we will hear from people with a variety of perspectives on this issue. But that's then. For now, enjoy this conversation with your friend and mine, Mark Sheeran. Welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. You learn the basic rules, and it isn't really so complicated, is it? Good manners make good first impressions. It's a simple enough matter to give people you meet plenty of room to pass. Try to understand another person's viewpoint. That's a rather simplified suggestion of a complex mental process. But you get the idea. I'm here with Mark Sheeran. Mark, thanks for being on the podcast. Hi, Zach. It's good to be back. So we've spoken before about what addiction is, what it isn't. And today we're going to be talking about something more specific, namely drug substitution, or as some call it, drug substitution therapy, or more often referred to as medication-assisted therapy or medication-assisted treatment. And we'll cover that in just a minute. And first, I want to suggest that people listening today also listen to our last interview, where we covered a lot of territory about who you are, what you do. It was a really fun, in-depth, interesting conversation, and it's worth its own listen. But um, let's not require people to listen to a whole previous episode to be able to listen to this one. So will you tell people a bit about your background, what kind of work you do on a routine basis? Sure. Uh, first, let me congratulate you on your new book. That's, uh, oh, thank you that's so a much. big achievement. Thank yeah. you so much, yeah. It's fantastic. Um, okay, well, I, I, uh, uh, re- I'll go through this really fast. Sure. Um, I was, I grew up steeped in treatment. Uh, I eventually had a problem because people told me I would have a problem. By 18, I was uh, a total mess. I ended up getting into a very serious uh, drunk driving accident that I was the driver in. I decided to stop. I did stop. My life moved on. And then I was mandated into treatment and I went backwards very quickly. So uh, having the experience of having stopped quite easily, even though I was a daily drinker that shook in the morning and had withdrawal, um, I detoxed myself and moved on with my life. And then to be stuck in the system for 18 months and have the experience of literally being hardcore brainwashed and abused into believing in the disease concept, um, which I, I rallied against for over a year and then finally succumbed to the idea because I would have no freedom and no constitutional rights if I didn't if I didn't take on that party line. Um, And having that experience 
when I finally matriculated out of treatment, I had a moment of sanity and I said, you know what, I'm going to build a better model. And I created the first non-12-step model. I created the term non-12-step and I, I started uh, the freedom model. Uh, and that was 30 years ago. So um, it wasn't called the freedom model in those days. It wasn't, it was nothing. It was just me, a 19 year old kid who was homeless, starting a company and deciding to find a better answer. And, uh, and it developed into a, a, a movement. And um, so I've been doing that for 30 years. And now we have the freedom model, which is a, I call it sort of the manifesto of non 12 step. It's, you know, we wrote down all the research and put it into a book and we help people at our retreats and um, all that fun stuff. So that's my story in a nutshell, uh, where the model came from, who I am basically, and what I do. I'm going to ask you a loaded question. How do you define addiction? <laughs> well, I think it's a preference for heavy use. I mean, at its base, it's just a preference for heavy use. Um, and uh, I would call it a habit. Uh, the problem with the way I just explained it is it's so oversimplified based on our culture and what we've been teaching people for 80 years that it seems dismissive when I say that. And mm. uh, I don't I don't want to be dismissive and I'm not being dismissive. You're talking to a guy that knows what it's like to wake up and by 10 o'clock in the morning and eat a beer at 18 years old or his hands would start shaking so bad that I couldn't function. So I, I certain, and I've, you know, I've been suicidal. I've, I've been in jail. I, I, you know, I've gone down those roads. So I'm not being dismissive when I say it's just a habit, you know, um, it's a confounding habit mixed with so much mythology today that it took us 450 pages to deconstruct the nonsense that's killing people. So yes, it's just a habit that takes 450 pages to sift through the <laughs> crap that people are being taught about. That is all the mythology. And if you go through that 450 pages, you'll come out the other side and you'll go, oh my God, it's just a habit. So that's my answer. Right. It's, it's almost the opposite of trying to be dismissive. It's conceivable that labeling something an addiction at all, instead of just a, a, the normal occurrence of life problems, can fuel a belief that a person's problems um, are, when it comes to addiction, are somehow different than what could be seen as more naturally occurring. That's right. That they that the problem that is a temporary problem or a behavioral issue is suddenly bigger than the human mind, right. and and that is the problem. It's not bigger than the human mind. The human mind is beyond. It is it is shapeless. It is completely filled with free will. It's that's that's what it is. So this idea that somehow a physical drug can take over and change the content of our thoughts is is laughable on its face, but people believe it because of the way we talk about it, which is really unfortunate because just like everybody else that's been quote unquote addicted, I know what it's like to feel like I really had no choice, mm. you know, because I believed it. And that's a painful place to be. You and I agree that addiction, whatever it is, is not a disease. It's not some kind of ailment and certainly cannot be treated through a sort of dogmatic spiritual experience that the 12 steps claims to be and is. Right now, with respect to addictions to opioids, it seems that the gold standard, let's say, for saving lives, helping people overcome their addictions, is by way of opioid substitution with buprenorphine, suboxone, and methadone. Uh, for people unfamiliar with these drugs, by the way, check the links in the description um, or listen to the introduction of this episode. Mark, what are your thoughts about this approach, generally speaking? 
Oh boy, I mean, you're going to take some heat for this. Um, one of the one of the things that I'm very good at, and always have been since I was a young kid, is I have a skill of seeing trends, mm-hmm. and um, and I've always been able. Like for instance, I was talking about the whole underlying causes of addiction movement 25 years ago. You know, before it was really called that. And I, I said, this is going to is going to hurt a lot of people because they're going to connect underlying causes to addiction and they don't necessarily your addiction isn't caused by anything. But that's a whole different discussion. But here's my point. Matt, as an industry, is going to harm a lot more people than it helps. And it already is. And we have we have the numbers. I can sit here on the podcast and go through those numbers. But I think that's that gets really dry. If you want to know those types of numbers, um, you can. Steve Slate has a lot of work already accomplished. We're actually writing a book about Matt right now. Mm. Um, so, so I think that when we call a drug medicine, we have to be careful about what that means. When they say there is a medicine for heroin addiction, um, my ears perked up and I said, "Oh, oh, really?" You know, so. Because I know that what fuels addiction is not always physical withdrawal. As a matter of fact, that's a small portion of what is a reason for use. What fuels addiction is a person's preference, mental preference. So now we're delving into taking a physical, quote unquote, medicine to solve a person's preference. That is where we get into uh, something that can't work. It just can't work because it's ill-fitting. It doesn't, it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. So if you take a physical medication as a way of modifying behavior, um, you know, to stop somebody from liking heroin, that's never going to work. And in, in our book, in the freedom model, I talk about, I use an analogy of NASCAR. In NASCAR years ago, they the, the cars were going over 200 miles an hour and they didn't have good safety standards. So people were dying in races. So what they did is they put what was called a restrictor plate on carburetors of the cars, of the race cars, limiting the speed of the cars. And the, and the race car drivers were really pissed off, right? Yeah. Because, you know, what it did was it equalized the field and it also slowed them down. I mean, the whole point of racing a car is the risk involved and the excitement and the, the adrenaline and winning after all. And so my question was in the analogy is, did having a restrictor plate make the race car driver a lover of going slower? No, it didn't change the motivation to win. It didn't change the desire to go faster. It just regulated his speed much to his chagrin. He hated it. The race car drivers hated it. So they started cheating. And so what you have with Matt now is these these uh, forum boards filled with people cheating on Suboxone, you know, trading in their Suboxone or methadone for heroin, wondering why they can't get high and are pissed off about it. And what it does is it fuels this idea. So they're, they're, these people become confounded. They're saying, you know, this is supposedly a medicine. It's supposed to make me not want to get high. Well, it can't do that because your desire to get high is based on your preferences, which is a completely different subject. So we're avoiding the subject that actually is the cause of addiction, which is your reasoning. 
and we're saying you have medicine that will stop you from wanting something. And, and, and when it's talked about that way with the analogy, you can see how ridiculous that is. So as an industry, we're, we're going once again down a path that's based in funding. Basically, what you have is instead of the guy on the corner making money on heroin, you have a doctor making money on uh, moderate use of heroin through Suboxone and Methadone, because that's really what it is. It's just moderate use. So anyway, I hit a whole bunch of topics in there, and I don't mean to commandeer the whole talk here, but um, I think that we're going down a real bad path based on poor information, great marketing. I mean, their, their whole goal is to get everybody on mat. Um, they're talking about that, changing laws so that literally anybody that likes heroin is going to be on Suboxone. With no snark, um, who's the they that you're referring to? Uh, just the ind- the Suboxone industry and the government, the government, state governments, the federal government is talking about what, how can we get every single person that has a heroin problem on Suboxone? And uh, various advocates, Matt advocates, um, you hear it uh, in the news now. And, you know, I could see it coming. If you call something medicine that supposedly works, well, my God, with all the overdoses, of course, we're going to go in that direction. Problem is, is that we've been using uh, Suboxone and Methadone for decades. And in the last decade, you know, the incidence rate of overdoses skyrocketed. Now, that's partly because of fentanyl. But the point is, Matt isn't stopping this overdose crisis. It's not. So if it was a medicine, it would. I asked you a short question that required a long answer. And so right. I think it's the least I could do to try to summarize. And at least you could tell me if I'm getting anything wrong. There's really no avoiding our society's attitude toward these drugs. We can't, we can't ignore this. It's clear that many people believe, or at least they act as though they believe, that there's an inherent property of methadone, buprenorphine, and, and all these drugs that is ameliorative more so than, say, heroin itself. So we can identify sort of a logical and pragmatic problem here, because one could argue that if we're to buy into the idea that methadone and buprenorphine are ameliorative, then we're tacitly saying that these drugs are medicines and that they're good and that other opioids are inherently destructive and bad. And then one could argue that such a formulation could only be true in a disease framework, that addiction is a medical condition to be solved through medicines. And I suppose that this is no secret because this method is called medication assisted treatment. So we'll have to we'll have to unpack all this in a minute. Um first m- maybe we can just give the devil his due. I mean forget about current attitudes and forget about marketing just for a second even though we can't ignore it practically speaking. But just philosophically, do you think that if a person uses opioids destructively wants to get better that it's even possible that he could turn to using methadone and buprenorphine instead while it sorts his life out? And that he could be helped by that? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, I'm not blind to the fact that there's two ways that it can be helpful. First of all, I think that the use of uh, Suboxone and, and these drugs in detox works. You know, in, in short-term dosages where your goal is to stop, right, if, if that's your goal, um, then it's, then it's a, a wonderful tool, you know. Whatever makes withdrawal easier and smoother probably is a good thing. I, I can't see anything bad about that. 
I also think that there are cases where somebody needs maybe they're they're at a high risk of getting fentanyl laced heroin. And as long as the black market exists, as long as we don't have uh, legalized opiate use, meaning heroin, all of it, um, you're going to have a black market and the black market causes death. It just does because you don't know what you're getting. Um, so to that degree, if you're at a high risk of getting, you know, a bad batch of heroin, going on methadone might work. Here's the problem. That's not how it's told in, in a lot of places. And what's happening is you're taking people that aren't at that risk that are maybe taking um, pills, you know, and uh, or they have or they have a supply of heroin that's solid and they've never had a risk of of it being laced with anything. And and there's a lot of people like that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people like that. And to say that you can never stop and that you need Suboxone is a false narrative. So I think that you have this small portion of people that would be helped um, by stopping the cycle through methadone or Suboxone of the risk of overdose or dying from the illicit use of drugs. Which is a very, 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 very small percentage. We know it's very small because the percentage of overdose per capita of users is very tiny, contrary to popular belief. Mm. It's not to say that that overdose isn't tragic. I'm not saying that. I think any life lost is hugely sad and tragic. But I'm saying on a percentage basis, it's tiny. You know, so you have this this small percentage of people where safety is the issue and they're not identifying that situation uh, very well because we have a whole bunch of other people on Suboxone needlessly. So I would say that if, until we have identified who is truly at risk of overdose, really, truly at risk, and I don't think we know how to do that. I'm not sure we should be handing out a bunch of Suboxone as medicine because it's a lie. So I always say, at what price? At what price are we getting everybody on these medicines? Well, the price is some people will be saved from the illicit street drug that could have you overdose. But you have a whole host of people that probably would have stopped on their own without any medications whatsoever, had never overdosed, they could have moved on with their lives because we know the attrition rate of people getting off of drugs is high. You know, they're, they're, going, to, they're going to figure it out and get off the, the heroin on their own. Um, but now they're caught in the trap. And the trap is, and this is fundamentally the problem, is people sell the idea, our culture, let me rephrase that, sells the idea, the premise that you can't stop. So if you sell that idea to the masses, then that's myth number one. Then the next myth is there's medicine that can save you from yourself, medically assisted, and make it so that you won't want the drug. That's a second myth. So now we have all these people needlessly on a drug that can't do what they're saying it's going to do. They feel horribly dissatisfied. And then they cycle into heroin use again, and then they get back on that. 
And then they cycle back into heroin because it's not satisfying their craving, which is a mental process, not a physical one. And now they suddenly are, are elongating the process that normally natural remission would take care of. And it's not a small number of people that are in this trap. So that's why I call it the mat trap. So harm reduction is, is the disease model and different clothing. All of this is because it's, the premise is if you drill down to the people that are administering this stuff, the vast majority will say, well, the person can't stop. You know, they can't stop. Without, without Matt, they're going to continue to get high and die. And it's not true. Some will, a tiny percentage will. So let's identify that tiny percentage. So I, I've kind of just gone on and on, but to try to describe something as complex as this takes a little time. I'm sorry to interrupt the show, but I wanted to remind you that this show was brought to you by you. If you listen to the show and you do not donate, please consider making a small donation to patreon.com slash the social exchange, our Patreon page. This will help us in our efforts toward creative projects in the future. Um, contributions so far have funded things like new audio equipment, travel, long-form podcast series, uh, we're making one now, and my blog site, modesofexchange.org. So again, help the show by making a small donation to patreon.com slash the social exchange. The link is provided in the show notes. And while I'm at it, I want to thank all of our patrons. Chris Hanlon, D.D. Stout, Andre Pompel, Carter Vermont, Rick Barnett, Anne Earl, Inigo, John Holt, Layla Ferguson, Mary Kay Villaverde, Michelle, Nancy, Sean Holt, Regina Ferguson, Timmy Tucker, Christian, Thomas Rhodes, Kathleen Cochran, Marjorie Israel, Diane T, Trevor, Sue Matthew, and Linda Rhodes. Again, join the club, support the show, and become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash the social exchange. Now back to my interview with Mark Sheeran. So you're you're not against the drugs. That wouldn't even square with your whole formulation of what this problem is. Uh, but you're against the overstating the utility of these drugs, which you see we are currently doing en masse. People will argue that, say, there are places who administer or give or allow or make available these drugs, and then they, they don't tell people that they must stay on them. But culturally speaking, that's what is happening. I mean, just by virtue of calling it medicine, people believe that they must stay on them. And if you compare that with trends of what's called natural recovery, the numbers don't add up. It's like you end up having more people on more drugs more of the time and fewer people getting their lives together um, the, the way that they want to than if you just did nothing at all. And so doing something that leads to more problems than doing nothing at all, you could argue is not a, not a sustainable model. Well, it's not. I mean, we've had a 10, a 10 times growth in the last 14 years of people on mat, right? So, so you have this massive increase um, from, you know, before 2002, probably 215,000 people were on methadone or some variation. And uh, post-2016, we're at 2 million. So you've had this massive increase of people on methadone or buprenorphine. And uh, you have, you know, prior to in the same years, you had 0.69% or seven tenths of 1% are 
are overdosing in the population of heroin users. And now that we have 2 million people on that, we have about 2%. So you had a, a huge increase of people overdosing. Now, I want to I wanna be careful here. A lot of that has to do with fentanyl. But the point is, if the medication was working, wouldn't there be uh, uh, would that would that growth be you know 0.5 percent growth? Would it be? Would it? It certainly wouldn't go from 0.69 percent to nearly two percent. You know, so um, in in any situation where you're dealing with medicine, there has to be some definable, appreciable uh, decrease in the disease that you're treating. And we don't see that anywhere here, but we see a massive 10 times growth in the treatment. So if you had a cancer institute that had 10 times the people coming in and getting chemo and everybody that was leaving in that population was having an increased rate of cancer, you'd have to say to yourself, I don't think this is working, right? Isn't that true? The snag, as you mentioned, is that people are dying and that's a problem to be solved. And it seems that at least in some cases, for various reasons, the availability of these drugs could save a person's life. Now, obviously, the model that we would hope to use wouldn't be a medical one and be more of a laissez-faire, free market kind of a model where no, nobody is told there's a right and wrong way to access the drugs. But yeah. You know, we hear claims that methadone and suboxone are life-saving. To what extent do you believe that's true? Well, it's really tough to to dive into the numbers because sure. um, I, I think I think it's true that if you have a clinic in an area, and, and I have to be very careful here, in an area where there's been overdoses from fentanyl, right? And you can look at these things and see where these things are happening. You have seven kids die on a block in some town, you know, because they got a bad batch. That's probably a good place to start looking at Matt. Sure. You know, temporarily. I mean, you know, but, but I would, I would love to be able to say that there's some sort of um, research been done on finding those areas before it happens. I don't think that can happen. So now we're going to go to the next phase of really how, what we need to do, which is legalization. The only rational way to be able to make it so that we have a safe supply of drugs and uh, out there and where Matt would only be needed for detox at that point would be to legalize it and allow people to have a clean supply of what they want. You know, and and we watched that. We've already run the experiment with prohibition. You know, when speakeasies were when they outlawed booze, I mean, people were dying from the wrong type of alcohol. They went blind and died because, you know, they had bathtub gin. Right. So the prohibition of drugs has never worked. It will never work. It causes crime. It causes death. And uh, and it's an immeasurably expensive to try and stop it because you're not going to stop people from doing what they like. So the real answer to this is, is a shift and into legalization. And here's what's kind of, there is hope here. Um, I remember when I started my retreat in uh, 89 and uh, I remember talking about this with um, about pot, you know, 
And uh, it was it's funny because pot's so innocuous. But um, people said that it would never be legalized. It will never be legalized, Mark. That's a dream. And I said, well, I don't know. It seems like a pretty innocuous drug. I, you know, and here it is. It's essentially legalized. I mean, it's just a matter of time before anybody can just go out and smoke weed, you know, without being put in handcuffs. Um, and so I think there is hope. I think what's going to happen is the mat train is going to have to crash mm. because there's so much money in it right now. I mean, the doctors are making hand over fist millions as are the pharmaceutical companies and, uh, and treatment centers are funded by the government. I mean, you have an entire infrastructure and there's so much mythology, uh, and dogmatic nonsense being peddled about this with the fear of overdose driving it. I mean, you don't get a better marketplace. You really don't. So we're not going to stop the Matt train for I, I'm going to I'm going to make a prediction and it'll be recorded on this show. Uh, Fifteen years from now, there's going to it'll start in about five years. And in about five years, everybody that's been a proponent of Matt, not everybody I'm talking absolutes, um, but a large portion of them are going to start really questioning it because they're going to watch the cycle of the trap start to expose itself. It'll start spilling. The bucket will start spilling. And people who shouldn't have died are going to start dying. And it'll become such a large problem that they're going to start going, uh-oh, something's not right. And then a few institutes like us will have a book out that says that this is coming down the pike. And I'm not trying to be a, a doomsayer or I, I, I'm not like that. I, I think people should be able to do whatever drugs they want to do. I, I literally think they should be able to do it and whatever they want. But I don't think they should be lied to, you know, and told they're getting medicine when they're not. So uh, and then from the period from five years from now to 15 years is where that train is going to crash. And then they're going to change the policy. And then there'll be some other addiction religion that takes over this. This addiction thing in our culture is remarkably screwed up yeah. and has been for 80 years. You know, it's the it's the real um, sacred cow of our society that nobody wants to touch, um, except guys like you and me. It seems like um, every time we have some progressive push, or I, I say progressive in a in a, yes. in it, you know what I mean, cool. not not politically yeah. speaking, but you know, it's like you would think that it would be good that more drugs rather than fewer are available. Um, but really, what happens is as people become as people wake up to realizing some variants of problems that we've had with our theories all along the way, the new theories seem to just become assimilated into the standard boxes and we're not shifting the paradigm. Um, oh yeah. Zach, you're singing my tune. Listen, when we started non 12 step, that term, mm -hmm. and it meant something because we were the only ones that were counter to the treatment model. And in those days, Steve's talked about this on our pod podcast and some of the Facebook live we did the other day. Back in the day, you had AA is what was the box you checked. I mean, everything was AA, right? 12-step based. And uh, then we came along with the anti-AA antidote, right? So it was non-12-step. So it was right. very clean in the industry. You had them and you had us. And there really wasn't anybody else providing services for people. There were other researchers like Stanton and the crew that were talking about it, but actually providing service, we were the first ones. Right. And now you had the new age holistic kind of weirdness off on the side, and then you had Narcan on <laughs> over here doing a front for Scientology. I discount all that as just kookery, right? Fair it's enough. Just nuts. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you had us and them. 
And then what happened was we exploded. We went from literally, I, I started my company with nothing and, you know, we were millions of dollars and we were, we expanded our retreats and we helped thousands of people and an entire movement grew up. But within three years of that kind of momentum, boy, the rehabs grabbed a hold of it and bastardized that term. It means nothing now. It actually is, is it, it's almost a term I can't use in my marketing anymore because it doesn't mean anything. Hmm. It means sober living where they're, you know, hurting people. It means, and it means all this other stuff, all these other meetings now, all these other organizations are all grouped into non-12 step. It's not non-12 step. It's all 12 step in the same clothes. If you believe that people need recovery, some sort of mental recovery from, from a behavior, then, then you are really delving into the disease concept again. You really are. There's nothing to recover from. There's just choices to be made. And, and when you simplify it with that statement, that's what all of this comes down to, with the exception of detoxification, which is a toxic condition, you know? Um, so the only physical part of this whole addiction thing that exists is the need for detoxification. Everything else is just people making choices. So there's a tribal and ideological shift as time moves on, but not really a great practical shift, culturally speaking. Do you think that's why many people who speak out against the disease theory uh, support MAT? Or if not, why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a black and white answer. It, it really, it's hard for people to believe only because of 80 years of the push. Look at when Bill Wilson started the disease concept as a cultural phenomenon. Prior to that, it really wasn't a cultural phenomenon. People were like, what? You know, the, there were there were people that said it, that promoted it, but it really never caught fire. Um, when he did that, he, he had decided, you know, we're going to make this true because and you can read about this. I mean, it, it's well known. He wrote about it that he wanted to die a millionaire. And he did. You know, that was his goal. His goal was to mainstream his myth. Mm. And uh, and and now we have 80 years of it. So people are born into it. It's 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 just like bloodletting. You know, um, here we were literally killing people with bloodletting. The very, it's literally the opposite of what you should do when somebody's sick is take their immunity away. Right. By by draining them of their blood. It's crazy. <laughs> but we did it for centuries knowing it was a bad idea, you know. So if you have a belief and the belief is so intrinsic to our culture now, the way we talk about heroin, just watch a newscast. It, it makes me crazy. You know, the drug had him, they'll say, you know, they'll do an expose on the kid that, you know, died in the little town in Virginia um, who overdosed. The drugs had him. The drugs had him. The drugs aren't alive. You know, it's not a pathogen, but it sounds like you're talking about a, a legitimate disease. And so people don't even realize it's become the way we talk about it, the way we think about it. It's become literally the fabric of our society. And now, now, even worse, I, I have children and they go through school and they go into health class. And by second grade, you're getting taught, you know, they're doing all these posters about being susceptible to addiction. Mm. You know, if you take one pill out of your parents, you know, medicine cabinet, 
you'll be shooting heroin in your arm. And these are rural schools that didn't even see heroin, but now we're educating people on how to be an addict, you know, how to take on that identity. And they don't, they think they're doing a good job. I get it, but it's, it's, it's absolutely horrible. Now what's ironic is with my kids, I, I, I didn't allow them to be in those classes. And, or I said, listen to the teacher, listen, um, you're going to take and do that curriculum, but I also want the freedom model presented. And so I gave them a book and they said, if I teach this, I'll be fired. So, so it's, it's, it's so mainstream. So I think that any uh, mat is going to get co-opted into disease nomenclature. That's just the way it's going to work. And it already has. And, uh, it's unfortunate, but that's that's where these things go. So let, let me pull us back into the the overall argument here. We have sort of a framing problem, and you've helped me divide it a little bit. You would say that the entire enterprise on a large scale of valuing some kinds of drugs over other kinds of drugs, calling some kinds of drugs medicine and others poison, roughly speaking, this framework needs to change. And at the same time, it's also, well... Let's let's not stop the what the mythology is there. I guess the people would say it's also inherently bad to take one drug over another. Um, right. It's not inherently bad to take methadone, right? But so it's becoming likelier and likelier as time goes on that a given person regularly taking methadone is of the belief that he's on the road to getting better and that the drug is doing more of the work than it really is. What do you say to people who believe that Drug users should be able to use drugs if they want to, and that because methadone and suboxone are really the one legal avenue toward doing so, then it's what we should be offering. Oh, yeah. Look at I don't I, – I think as long as people know that they're – if they take a whole heaping bunch of it, they could die. I think it's, it's fine. I, I, I have zero problem with legalizing everything. Right. You know, zero, as long as we're being truthful about it. Oh, yeah. When you I'll give you an example. Alcohol has been around legal now that we ran the prohibition experiment. We crashed and burned on that one. And then they re-legalized it. Right. They regulate the daylights out of it. They tax the daylights out of it, which is a different conversation, which is fine. Um, and then and then uh, when you go to school in health class, here's a good, a good example of good education. This happens in a lot of freshman college orientations as well, because that's where alcohol use <laughs> peaks, right? Yeah. Um, you're told, here's a shot glass, here's a glass of wine, here's a beer. They're all equal. One hour, basically, drink one an hour, you'll be safe. Try not to drive and kill somebody. Um, enjoy yourself. Mm. And, and you know what? A shit ton of kids drink their brains out, the amateurs puke and some overdose, but it's very, very, very tiny percentage wise for the amount of people that drink because it's a hell of a lot more than take heroin or any other drug. It's probably physically one of the worst drugs you could ever take. It's a simple sugar and it just poisons the shit out of you. Um, the, the rate of overdose, the potential for overdose is very high because of the way the, the action of the alcohol works. Yet, we don't have a high percentage per capita of overdose, even mm -hmm. with the massive amounts of kids doing it, because it's regulated. You you look at a beer and you say, oh, that's 5% beer. This is 3% beer. This is 90 proof. That's 50% alcohol. Ooh, I got to go easy on the straight grain alcohol they just got from Pennsylvania. I take three shots of that, and that's different than this shot of whiskey. You know, and, and 
because they understand because they've been educated in it, right? It's legal. People know what they're getting into and and they are able to regulate it and and stop. It's only when we start teaching people um, that they can't stop that we really see problems start happening. Right. So we've seen we've seen prohibition of alcohol, then we've seen alcohol become legal again, and we're not super happy with what happens as a result of irresponsible, let's say, use of alcohol or just the destruction it can conceivably cause. But when we partner that with what happened during prohibition, nobody in their right mind is saying, "Hey, let's go back to prohibition." Uh, yeah, no w- would we really want to go back to where somebody is Let's say you, you, the average age of starting drinking is 12, right? So you, you start drinking at 12, and you get a, a case of uh, bathtub gin, and you go blind. Do we really want to do that? That's so needless. It's so pointless, you know? And we ran the experiment, and now kids aren't going blind and dying needlessly. And so we can ask ourselves, I mean, it's not, it's not ridiculous to ask, are we in a situation where... If we were to make available all of the drugs that we see as harmful, and then we try that out for a while, and then we look back and, and thought about, well, what was happening when we made these drugs prohibited, would we kick ourselves for ever having done it? And uh, it seems reasonable to say that the answer would be yes, we would kick ourselves. We would be terribly regretful that we've for so long made drugs illegal. And, but, you have to, but you have to get rid of, if we're going to do that. You have to first get rid of the disease mythology, because if you do legalize while people still contain the idea in their head that they can't stop, that's not a good recipe. So one of the things we would have to do before legalization is tone down the rhetoric dramatically, come up with some factual education to say, hey, these drugs aren't bad. Methadone isn't bad. Suboxone isn't bad. Heroin isn't bad. I mean, can you imagine saying that to somebody? They're like, what? Yes. You know? (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I often do, and that that is what happens. So I think that there's a whole bunch of factors at work. I think that you know, obviously, from the things I've said, I'm I'm highly critical of of what harm reduction has turned into. Sure. This is what I know. This is what I know. Anytime you have a theory or an idea that becomes popular, if it's based in in something that isn't true. It will everything downstream from it becomes poisoned by the untruth, and that is unavoidable. It can't. It's just the way the psyche works. It's the way, and 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 each individual makes up a small portion of a society. So if enough people believe in those lies, the poison goes throughout, and and in the end, people die. In this situation, let me put that in a practical, um, real life scenario. I'm about to visit an organization in Arizona that provides access to these drugs that we're talking about to a population of people who, I mean, these people continually crave opioids. They're honest about it, many of whom do want to improve their lives. And they'll say they have limited access to the resources needed to do so. And they figure they'll probably want to take opioids again in the future. And they also want to stay alive. And so, Uh, Don't want to buy heroin from, like you were saying, someone selling it to them within an unregulated market. They want an opioid whose effects are predictable. And um, this facility in Arizona, as I understand it, also offers counseling and life resources, skills training, education. So it may just be the case 
for the most downtrodden people in that community that taking a daily dose of methadone or suboxone gives them an opportunity to engage with people in a corner of the world where they feel safe and accepted, part of a community. Now we have this, um, I'm breaking it down to a micro level because you're talking about being against an overall, an overarching concept that's based in mythology versus um, what one organization or another could do in a helpful way. But do you think there's some, anything wrong with this model that I've just described to you? Yes. The biggest problem with it is, is anybody telling them before they go to a drug option that they can just stop? Yeah. And the answer is no. The, the, that's the premise I'm talking about. So the premise is every single thing that you just described is based on a faulty premise that nobody is that, – that, that the person is diseased. Maybe they don't say that. But trust me, if you tell somebody they can't stop and that they need a drug to stop a drug and that the drug is a medicine to stop taking the other drug, then what you're telling them is without that drug, you can't stop. That's the implication. So you don't have to sit there and be a disease proponent, an active disease proponent to push the disease concept. That's why I always say that the mat train is the, the disease concept in new clothing. It's the absence of the option, the most obvious option that is the most powerful and and the most used option in the long run. We know that people get over the problem. You wrote about it in your book. I wrote it about it in mine. And that is that over 90% of heroin users stop on their own, whether treated or not, when you factor in age. So why in God's name don't we look at that and say, over nine out of 10 people stop? Why don't we talk about that to the guy that's out on the street? Why don't we say, hey, did you know that you have a great chance of moving past this? And why don't we do that today instead of waiting 20 years or eight years or five? Where I said people want to improve their lives, but they have limited access to the resources needed to do so. It, that might be a fair place to stop and say, okay, now what are their options in terms of resources for doing so? And um, what options do they think that they have for doing so? Is it that they're only they do they think that their only option is to go to a place that offers drugs? And do they think that this place that offers drugs is a place that, whether they like it or not, is their best bet at getting better, even though they could be told that they need to be on these drugs indefinitely? So therein lies the the problem, I guess. Yeah, it's the lack of information. It's the lack of truthful information. Sometimes a lie by omission is more damaging than an outward lie. I've always said mm. that half-truths in this industry is what kills people. You know, if you say to somebody methadone could save you from illicit drugs, from fentanyl, um, from an overdose, that's probably true. But you leave out the fact that they don't have to take fentanyl. Right. I mean, Jesus Christ, why why aren't we telling every single person that quote unquote is an addict that, hey, nine out of 10 of you are going to stop? No, they're going to go to a treatment center and they're going to be told only one out of 10 of you is going to make it. It's a lie. It's a lie. Why are we lying to people to try to scare them into abstinence? And now the reason the lie exists is because uh, treatment's been an abysmal failure. And the only thing that gets studied is people in treatment in the abysmal failure system. Nobody's looking at the guy that is sitting on his couch at home, has two kids in the other bedroom, and has been shooting heroin for two years or three years or 10 years, and then says, I'm done. I'm done. 
And then he moves on with his life. He detoxes in his bedroom for three days, sweats it out, pukes for three days, gets on with his life and moves on. That isn't studied as much. It is. Now, you know that and I know that because we've delved into those numbers. But but the point is that the real heroes are the people that just simply stopped like I did mm. sitting on the side of a road after a car accident, a car chase. Right. And I was happy. I was happy because I was done. I, you know, it wasn't there wasn't any big fanfare. You know, I didn't have to surrender. There was none of that. It was I'm done. And I would never be studied. You know what I mean? Right, right. I wouldn't be part of some treatment study. That's what I was about to say. I was just interviewed on a podcast recently about the new book and I was talking about my, you know, how I used to use heroin very destructively and how I stopped and how much of that story is in the book. And I said, not very much. It just, just used to contextualize things because it's not an interesting story. If I tell the true story, it's not interesting. The fact is I, I used heroin and then I stopped using heroin. There's not much more to it than that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's the most common story. And it's completely ignored. Yep. And instead, we're putting masses. The goal is to put every heroin user on Suboxone. Make no mistake, that is the goal of the pharmaceutical company. Now, look, at I'm a capitalist. I, I think they should be able to make whatever the hell they want. If, if you have a buyer for it, if the public is willing to be ignorant. But you know what? I don't want them to be ignorant. I want I want the freedom model to be front and center. I want your model to be front and center so that that's the first thing in line that people get before they have to make a determination on whether to be safe, they need to take methadone. Yeah. Now, now if they're provided the proper information, they may be at a crossroads in their life and they say, geez, do I want to be on the mat train for the next six years cycling in and out of heroin use? Because they've already probably done that, right? They've already done that for 18, the last 18 months. They get it. They're, they're practiced at this whole nonsense, this charade, and they're getting tired of it, you know, and they've maybe, maybe they've even gotten close to an overdose or two. Um, and, you know, you take somebody like that and you say, hey, you really can. Did you know that most people get over this problem? People, people, when I tell them that they are totally blown away and excited you know, because there's a way out where they're not stuck in the trap. I don't want to get too meta on you here, but I can picture people who are some of the best helping individuals, you know, people in the helping profession that I can possibly imagine listening to this and being frustrated at you because they work their asses off maybe 12 hours a day trying to help people. Are these people or are some people unwittingly helping perpetuate mythology that they don't know that they're perpetuating? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I know it's hard. Look at I did it. I did it. My first 12 years of my retreat, I'm writing an article about it right now and hmm. sort of a confessional about, you know, I just didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I was starting knowing intuitively based on my my past that the 12 steps try to remember the 12 steps at that time, although it, it's a dying breed now um, being replaced by Matt 12 steps was it. Right. right. So mm -hmm. that was that was the medicine, the faith healing of the time. And um, I I was teaching the 12 steps. I was teaching the big book. And and but I had one fundamental difference that carried the day. And that was I told them that the first step of powerlessness was total horseshit because I knew for me it was nonsense. It was self-evident. And I had met so many people that got over their booze problem, you know, growing up in rural America. I, I, I saw it. So I knew it was nonsense. But. 
I was unwittingly, the whole idea that underlying causes uh, causes addiction, I was hammering that home for years. I was into the whole spiritual angle that you had to have God to, to move on from, from a drug problem, which absolutely is not true. Um, it's fine if you believe in God. I do. You know, I'm a Catholic dude, but but it's not a requirement in order to, to get over a drug problem. So so I, I unwittingly for 12 years was slowly extricating myself from the model. And the way I did that is why I, I've always felt that I did it the right way. And that was I immersed myself with my guests by living at my retreat. So I had to live with my mistakes. Mm. And that was really hard because mm. when you tell somebody something and it doesn't work, the only one standing there is the teacher was me. And boy, it hurt. You know, when I realized I gave people poor advice, when I when I tried to control people like rehabs do that whole control model, you know, um, manipulating people, I didn't mean to. It was all in the best interest of the people I was trying to help. But I didn't know what I was doing. But I learned. I learned. And thank God that I started with the premise that people got over the problem. Somehow I knew that to be true because I ended up having the highest success rate verified in the country in my first year. And it was only by telling people that they could get over the problem when everybody else was telling them they couldn't. And that's when I knew when I started, you know, tracking the people post program and I started talking to them. In those days, it wasn't independent studies because we were a tiny, tiny company. But I was I was getting the indicators that I could figure out what was working, what wasn't working. And that's why it took 12 years, you know, and eventually I had the independent companies coming into all the research and track the people down and do, do the proper studies without my company being involved. So I guess my point is, yeah, I think people I think there are really great people out there who are so trying to help, you know, they're doing everything in their power. I know I know hundreds of them. But they're in a system that is so – remember, if the premise is flawed, everything downstream will be flawed. And that's what they're working in. They're working in that pool. And I, I really believe that this is going to sound arrogant, but I really believe the freedom model and any model like that that's out there is the only – if you're not teaching people that they have free will and can move past this, you're teaching mythology that hurts people. You were talking about sort of deprogramming yourself. And this might be an interesting thing to model for people. Let's just say you're you're a really bright guy and you're sort of ripe for the picking in terms of someone who's going to lead people through a true educational framework. But there are a lot of people out there who, as you say, are providing, thinking that they're providing help. Maybe they are in a lot of ways, but they're doing it within this model. Say they've been doing it for 15 years. How can they buy into what is actually true when they have to look back and say, damn, I wonder how many people I've harmed over the past 15 years? How did you how did you reconcile that with your with your present self? I think that that um, you can only accept the fact of what you know at the time you know it. And and I I think there's just a certain wisdom in knowing that as humans, we do the best we can. Mm. I, I look at I, I I had two things. I just wrote about this in the article and, and I loved people. I genuinely genuinely care about people because I know what it's like to be completely alone and near death. And that is a, if you have experienced that and you've come out of it, you can't look at humanity the same way without having compassion. So 
I think that if you are a person that has that kind of compassion and you've been in a model that frankly is just filled with damaging mythology, the first thing you say to yourself is, geez, you know, I'm doing my best because you are, you are, I mean, that's the way it is. And then secondly, what can I do to educate myself on these other models? The first two things I would do is read your book, Zach, and read the freedom model. If you read those two books, you will know more than 99.9% of the quote unquote experts in the industry. You will have, you have more knowledge about how to effectively help people than, than literally nearly every expert that's out there. So the information is there for people. The question is whether you have an open mind, whether, and, and here's the other part. If you don't have that kind of compassion, get out of the business because this is a compassionate business. You know, if you find yourself saying, I don't really want to do the research to help people, well, then get out of the business. You don't belong there. You're hurting people. Mm, Almost like it's, it's narcissistic in a way to say, I don't want to believe this because then that means that I will have, you know, that I've hurt people in the past. Whereas you're going to continue hurting people in the future if you don't go ahead and learn what you need to learn. Yeah. Now you're going to have to take mine and your word for it on this podcast. If if you're hearing this and say that, that there is a better way, right? You know, right. you have to have at least an open mind to go try and, and at least read the damn thing we're talking about and say, well, and come up with your own conclusion. But I have yet to see somebody read it and say, oh, you're full of shit because they're, they're scared of it because they're like, my God, my God, this is this is the right way, you know, <laughs> and they got to really rethink what they're doing for a living. I like I said, I've had <laughs> teachers tell me in schools, I, 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 I can't believe I'm reading this. And if I were to even utter this, I would lose my job because the disease model is so entrenched in what is being taught today. In my case, I put myself in a position where I was forced to figure it out. And I did that purposefully which is a very odd thing to do. And I don't think there, but, but here's the good news about that is I did the heavy lifting. You know, I did it. I did it for people and I wrote it down. I, it's free for God's sakes. You can get it on Kindle for, I don't know, five bucks or something. I don't know. It's cheap. Yeah. You know? And if you called me, I send you one for free. And I'm saying that on the air. Look at, I just want people to know that they can move on and that there, there is no need for treatment except for detox, for benzos, alcohol, you know, and, and the drugs that, that can kill you coming off of them. You know, it's, it's really, we need to simplify this for people. Let me toss yeah. out one more Hail Mary for the rollout of these drugs. Do you think there's any way to support the availability of drugs, of these methadone, suboxone, without perpetuating harmful mythology? Uh, only if we educate people on free will autonomy and the positive drive principle, right? The idea is that you are capable and of changing uh, on your own. Um, If you educate people on what those drugs actually do for detox, I think you could roll those things and then legalize them. So that's a three-pronged approach. Um, If that's the case, those drugs can exist and they're just like any other drug out there. You know, if it has its proper use and and it's not promoting an idea that people can't stop themselves from doing drugs, then I think it's fine, you know, but that's a, that's a lot. What I just described is a lot based on where our society is today and what the push is. Yeah. 
And 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 I made the prediction. I I really hope that the prediction isn't true. I hope we don't go down this path. I hope that podcasts and books like yours and mine become more popular. They are. There's a there's already a groundswell, right? Behind the scenes, behind the treatment veil are people really when they read our stuff, they're going, "Yeah. Holy cow, this is what I've been looking for." Um, they just don't, there's just not enough of us yet. Mark, I've been leading this conversation so far. And of course, we're not, we're not going to solve the world's problems in an hour, but, um, or maybe we will. I don't know. Is there anything you think I've missed so far about the way that I'm talking about this issue? And if so, please do take, take time to add any extra insight you think is needed here. No, I'm just excited that there's, there's people talking about it and having an open mind. Um, and one of the things that I think I'd like to say is if, if you're out there and you're hearing this for the first time, I did a podcast not too long ago with a fellow who was went through treatment and it really shocked him and scared him. You know what I was talking about because his whole ethos was like shot. Um, and, and I had to, I had to be very careful and, and walk on eggshells a bit. You know, I want you to know that in a venue like this with Zach, now I'm talking to the audience, I'm able to be open and very direct and if this information scares you, because ju- I'll get people saying, you're killing people, Mark, with this information. It is a disease. I just implore you to, to just read the book. Just read it. And then de- decide whether the research makes sense to you or not, right? I mean, knowledge is knowledge. And if I'm completely full of shit, you, you'll figure it out because people are smart. Um, I'm not because I've done my homework, but but you can decide that. and. Uh, and so I just want the audience to know that I care and that I've lived through addiction myself. I felt like an addict. I never say I was one because I don't believe that exists. Um, I've been absolutely suicidal. I've had two suicide attempts. I've, uh, this is all before the age of 19, you know, so I've lived a very, very hard life. So I understand the pain involved. So everything I'm saying is based in compassion and being as compassionate as possible and giving facts. So that's it. Mark, you know, I'm a fan of your work. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about this. And before we go, can you direct listeners to the different ways of learning about all the things that you were talking about today, your book, your website, podcast, anything? Yes. Well, first of all, let me thank you uh, for having me on because it's it's an audience. It's another audience. Absolutely. Um, uh, yes, you can go to thefreedommodel.org and uh, we have several ways of understanding and learning the freedom model, the, the contents of that book and, and our model, uh, that would be through the book, through both digital and paperback editions. We have freedom model private instruction where people can sign up to have classes directly one-on-one with Stephen Slate. He's the other co-author of the book along with Michelle Dunbar. Um, and myself. So you can sign up to have classes directly one-on-one with us from the comfort of home. Um, and we have, uh, of course, our retreat. So people spend four weeks with us. All of that is described on the freedommodel.org, uh, soberforever.net. And our research is with uh, on the sites thecleanslate.org and baldwinresearch.com. So that's, oh, and the phone number is 888-424-2626. Phew. That was a lot. Yeah, well, I'll include links to everything and the phone number in the show notes. Folks, I've been speaking with Mark Sheeran. Mark, thank you so much again for talking with me. It really, really, truly was a pleasure. I hope we can do it again soon. 
All right, Zach, thanks for having me on. And to the audience, take care.